welcome to the Bonfire of the Vanities episode of Sleep Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I am a grubby, ink-stained wretch hack. I am here with Emily Peck of Axios, who is also a, just a normal journalist. Not stained. And we are joined by a true industry professional here, Taffy Brodessa Acne. You used to be a journalist like us, and now you are a Hollywood person. And so now you have seen both sides. And so we have to talk about Bonfire of the Vanities because it is the classic example of a movie that, at least when it came out, was completely hated because a bunch of people read the book and didn't think the movie was as good as the book. Well, that's true. And I was very confused about it. I, I actually rewatched it when I was doing a Tom Hanks story in 2019. I found no no real complaint with it. What? Most, mostly because, like, here, there's a very, I have a very complex theory of, I mean, n- not a complaint with it, not a, like a, a socialist, I mean, I have a socialist complaint with it, but I, ha- I didn't have a, a movie-going complaint about it because it just seemed like an, okay. And I said <laughs> it, and I watched it again, and my husband and I were like, I said, What's going to happen when I say, when I look these people in the the eye and I say, I don't think this movie is that bad. I I, I agree, by the way, Taffy. Emily Emily has her jaw on the floor here, but I am with you on this one. I don't even think Emily's okay. I stopped breathing I pulled out my remaining shreds of journalist industry cred. I texted A.O. Scott, the co-chief critic at the paper where I still work, the New York Times, um, though I am on leave. And I said, I said, and it was, and I got an answer that made my jaw drop. I said, what's wrong with me? I don't think this movie is so bad. He said, that's because it isn't. It's better than the book. Brian, he said, wow, he said, I love Brian Tony Scott. is a better filmmaker than Tom Wolfe is a writer. Thank you. I was coming on here to sort of, sheepishly try to say that and now i have actual people with with credible opinions backing me up on this and emily i this is going to be the best episode because emily literally has her head in her hands right emily now Emily is so upset right now and i, I like am so I upset we should, in hollywood we would have had a pre-call to warn you that there was going to be some bad news or some difficult news or some tricky news we never say anything directly tricky news. Emily. there's going to be some tricky news on the call I just want to make sure you understand. Bonfire of the Vanities coming up on Slate Money goes to the movies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, let's just get into it, okay? Because this movie is terrible. The casting, the casting <laughs> is abysmal. Amazing. It is both sexist <laughs> Amazing. and racist. Amazing. And I, 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 my jaw is on the floor. There is very little redeemable about this film. I don't understand what you're talking about. Look, I, I just want to hear more, Taffy. Okay, so for, first of all, wait, let me just cut cards on the table here. 
Emily, let's start with a very important question. There are two books which have basically framed the popular understanding of this movie. One is the actual novel, Bonfire of the Vanities, which was greeted as the great American novel when Tom, when it came out in 1987. And Tom Wolfe was like the greatest living novelist. And people really loved that and novel when it came out. an event like yeah. they don't have anymore. Yes. And then the second book was written by Julie Salomon, who was given like complete access to the set by Brian De Palma and has been received in many ways as a sort of chronicle of a famous flop. And it is also a very well-written, very famous book and has probably had longer legs than the movie. Um, but even she didn't think it was a bad movie. But let me ask you first, like, which, if either of those two books have you read? I read Bonfire of the Vanities when everyone else did in like 1988 and I was not very old and didn't understand it very well. So I don't know. And then um, regarding Julie Solomon's book, I listened to her podcast, which basically does the book in audio form. So I feel I feel good about that material. I understand it. I can tell you more about it if you like. No one who did the movie thought it was bad. They all came away being like, we did a great job, which I completely understand having written content and thinking like, this is pretty good. And then you read it a week later and you're like, I'm so sorry I, I did this. Um, so that makes sense to me that no one realized it was bad in the making of it. And I will say it did bomb at the box office. Like that is undeniable. But from what I understand, like it only made $15 million a show. It's that it was plagued by production issues, which is why when you sent me that podcast, I was in a production van and like ripped my headphones off and was like, I cannot listen to this because <laughs> a lot of those production issues come from like Bruce Willis and Melanie Griffith and people just not like having tantrums and indecision and those things happen and you are like really at the grace of whomever is observing them. I'm not saying that my show is the bonfire of the vanities of, of cable, but I am saying that like, like it, it felt very personality ish that these things happened, that these stars were too big and they had too many expectations of how to be treated. Yeah. I mean, I think separate from the behind the scenes stuff that, that she lays out the movie as, as a work of art is bad. You don't need to read the book to be, to think it's bad. You just need to be like, wait, is Tom, Tom Hanks, is the most miscast. Like, this is a character that clearly should be like, and no shade to Tom Hanks. He's the greatest of his generation. We all love him. But like, this guy is supposed to be a kind of like a dark bond trader lacking in morals and ethics. And you just look at Tom Hanks's face and you're like, oh, he's a good guy. You're like rooting for him in this movie, but I don't think you should be. And, and nothing in the writing kind of validates that. You know what I mean? Like there's no, the writing just doesn't support his portrayal of the character very well. It's just all unearned. It's so Yeah, no, the, the, ma the master of the universe thing, We I have to, yeah, like, there is this part of the movie where he is introduced on the bond trading floor at, you know, wherever it was, Salomon Brothers or wherever, where um, 
where he's like, I am a master of the universe. And you look at him and there is like literally master of the universe. Like there is not a shred of master of the universe in him. He doesn't know how to play a master of the universe douchebag bond trader. Um, and I have to just mention that like, I'm a bit like you, Emily. I read the book when it came out and I was probably too young to understand it. But I do vividly remember the whole plot about Giscard bonds, which are real bonds. And it really kind of, that was the book that got me into the bond market. And I was kind of sad that the Giscard bonds failed to make, make it into the movie because the Giscard bonds were amazing. You might as well just tell Slate Money readers, this is the <laughs> it, content they crave. <laughs> it, they, they were bonds issued by Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, who was like the French resident. And it was it was the whole thing. Taffy's like rolling her eyes. She's like, what the hell? <laughs> but it was a real trade. Like Tom Wolfe actually found this trade from some bond trader friend of him and made it a central plot point. And, and Taffy, like you're on a ambitious you know 21st century tv production which didn't exist when this movie was made and the general consensus i think nowadays is that if you wanted to try to film bonfire of the vanities you would do it as a 10 10 part series on hbo you wouldn't do it as like a two-hour movie because there's just too much in the book to try and squeeze in and and that I think I take that criticism. I take the criticism that Tom Hanks was miscast. I take the criticism that Bruce Willis was miscast. But I think that visually, <laughs> like, there were great things in this movie. But Taffy, defend the casting of Tom Hanks. I'm going to defend all of it by telling you, like, a couple of things. So in when I was at NYU, I took a cinema studies class called, like, Movies of the Reagan era. And it was about Reaganomics and how it, it trickled down into the movies, right? And we watched Fatal Attraction, and we watched Wall Street, and we watched RoboCop, and we watched a movie called Working Girls, not Working Girl, um, though we talked a lot about Working Girl. And Working Girls was an independent movie that has since had some attention, but I won't get into that. And I remember my professor kind of ranting about these things, and I did not understand it because all of the people in these movies were the heroes of their movies, right? It was the 80s, and we're, we're going to get a Fatal Attraction reboot very soon. The star of my TV show, Lizzie Kaplan, is going to be in it, and it's going to be the woman's retelling. But back then, it was the man's, it was his sympathy. And you wonder, how did that happen? Well, I'll tell you. How it happened is that when a book, say, um, Bonfire of the Vanities is written, it was written by a journalist, someone who knew to have a certain amount of contempt for the people he was writing about, the, a certain amount of contempt that would make us as fellow journalists feel like we were on the same page about the content. And journalists have a lot of things, but they don't generally have money, right? The minute the property passes hands into TV making or movie making, it becomes the property of people with a lot of money who have sympathy for the characters as opposed to contempt for the characters. Do you see how it's going? Like anyone associated with my production is wealthy and they don't necessarily understand that I wrote it from a place of, of aspiration and longing. And, and, and every day, by the way, when a van picks me up and I'm sitting here drinking like pH balanced water, 
you know, for this brief period of time before I go back to the paper, like, I kind of get it. You live in this, you like, like you live in this sort of world where you can ask these questions, but you, you don't feel the wolf at the door. And I think that Bonfire of the Vanities was written by somebody who felt who felt the wolf at the door, but it was made by somebody who had millions and millions of dollars and could no longer relate to somebody who, who, who felt the wolf at the door. And that's what I think happened. It wasn't the casting. It wasn't necessarily the casting. It was made by the fact that the Tom Wolf character in, in Bonfire of the Vanities gets turned into the Sherman McCoy character in the movie because why wouldn't you want to be rich and famous? Why wouldn't you want to be very, very rich? Do you see what I'm saying? So so from Emily's point of view, though, about like the sexism of the movie, Sherman McCoy becomes this sympathetic character in the movie, while the equally rich and equally loathsome Kim Cattrall character like, is still rich and loathsome in the movie. She has no redeeming features. Well, she's thin. As she points she out. Well, she, she is thin. <laughs> she's thin and she leaves him. And she also, and she like, the is the only unscathed. It's the, like, she maybe is the only person who gets elevated in that movie by, in terms of the movie industry. Like, she becomes, she's, she's in a, another great um, wealthy 80s movie called um, Masquerade, which we should talk about um, some other time. But I mean, when, she's not portrayed as a hero. Tom Hanks somehow is portrayed as a hero in this movie, right, which is insane. Right, because it's made by people who, who live on Park Avenue near, near that. Like, you cannot have contempt for that character unless you are not in bed with that character. Which is fine. So they Hollywoodize the thing, but, like, they could have still cast someone who portrayed the role with more complexity, like like Michael Douglas in Wall Street or something. You know what I mean? It's like there could have time where Tom Hanks is like trying things he, like he does punchline. He's like trying a couple of dark characters before he knows where his bread is buttered and doesn't do that anymore. I don't know. I felt like he came off as a real ninny. And I think the character is not so much dark as he is a ninny. I do think Masters of the Universe wise, Wolf of Wa- the Wolf of Wall Street, and it's slow mo into a a party. That scene, that or all the scenes, are better Masters of the Universe scenes. But also remember that we're we're talking about this. Movies don't do this thing anymore, where they make the rich people into heroes because it used to be that the the, the there were millionaires making movies about millionaires. Now, when we, ta- when we make movies about rich people, we make it about billionaires. And even the millionaires have contempt for the billionaires. That's fa- I love this theory. This is a great theory. When was the last time you saw a movie where, where there was a hero who's like a single-digit millionaire? And also, like, the peop- all of us who write about it and talk about it, we're all, like, s- kind of socialist-leaning, right? Like, we are, we're journalists. We, I mean, I'm, we're, we're, you know, like, we, we're in unions. We are, like, it's very hard from our point of view to ever see any of those people to, like, I felt like the thing I had to do with every celebrity profile I ever wrote was, was, was not hate someone for having money. Like, I'm so familiar with this, this feeling of like, 
everybody who has written a celebrity profile can tell you the story of the time that they couldn't afford to park. They couldn't lay out the money at the chateau, which was where you had to, like everyone can tell you where to park when you can't park at the chateau and you better leave 45 minutes because it's $30 in cash to, to valet at the chateau and there's only valet parking. And I find the same dynamic is, is present here that when we watch these movies, when we make these movies now, like watch, what are we making now? We're making scam. We're making like portraits of scam artists who are millionaires or multimillionaires and we have contempt for them or we're making movies about billionaires and we have contempt for them. Okay, so let me let's let's go back to this movie and and look at like Melanie Griffith's husband who's who's extremely rich and kind of contemptible. Um Melanie Griffith herself talk about the anti-Semitism there. And also the inaccurate anti-Semitism. He has an open casket funeral, not a Jewish thing. That really but, bothered me too. I yes. mean, the phrase, I was like, this doesn't make sense at all. I mean, did the phrase, um, I'm no racist timey bother you? Did the well, DA the movie is, I mean, the movie is wild. It's, raci- it's so racist. It's, it's like r- everything. It's everythingist. But it's supposed to be. Like the book is supposed to be. It just doesn't translate because these people aren't selling it because they're all... They're all the thing. Well, was the book was self-aware. It was self-aware in the Sherman McCoy and the Melanie Griffith character. Maria Ruskin um, are both extremely racist, and that's how they get into this. Like at one point in the movie, she says something like, I'm Southern and I'm ex- I'm very uncomfortable right now because they're in the Bronx and there's like a lot of black people. And But the book was self-aware in portraying their racism, whereas the movie seems to be on the side of the racism in the way everything is portrayed. Then why don't you why don't you believe in my theory? The book is written by a journalist and the movie is made by someone who has as much money as Sherman McCoy. And, and with money comes racism? Is that the idea here? It, in that era, it comes whiteness. And it comes a sort of whispering to each other and you, and you talk and you talk and you talk to the point where you actually believe that you are engaged in the culture, but you're too in the especially in that era before there was internet use, you you only talk to people who are exactly like you. And you think you have an understanding because you gave money to like to Al Gore or something, or you know, or like young Bill Clinton. You think you have an understanding of the issues, but you do not have exposure in Hollywood in that era to anyone who isn't exactly like you. So that is actually, there is a classic scene in the movie with Murray Abraham playing this very racist DA who wants to become mayor. And he explains all of this in a very racist, but also very clear-eyed way. He's like, look at all of these white people who, you know, have no idea what's going on in the Bronx. He actually does have an idea of what's going on in the Bronx. He knows these people. He knows the political lay of the land. He's trying to sort of navigate it in a very cynical way and in a very racist way. But like, he he is a very clear-eyed and, and well-drawn and, I think, well-cast character. Did you know he refused to let his name be in the credits of the film because there was some dispute? Um, but it's all, it wasn't because he played, because of his rampant racism or anti-Semitism. It was because of, like, a uh, credit negotiation, an above-the-line credit negotiation. I, that world is such a strange one of, like, 
you know, I need a single card or I need like there's there's a whole world. But Felix, that character was written by Tom Wolfe. And then his entire being, his entire like 60 page being was distilled into a maniacal rant by someone who had to get it in because he, he only had 96 minutes to tell his story. Like it works in the book and it didn't work here because also like, like we're saying, you can't just <laughs> the book. Finally, Emily. Emily's like, see, Taffy has conceded there's one thing that didn't work. <laughs> There's so many things that didn't work. No, I'm saying that a lot didn't work. I just didn't. I saw it as not that different from Fatal Attraction, not that different from Wall Street, not that different from RoboCop or or anything of the of that era where we we aspired. That was the culture. We aspired to the culture as we always do. And we didn't have contempt for the wealthy yet. Tom Wolfe did. But Brian De Palma did not. Like Brian De Palma was, was, you know, like when you hear that, when you hear that Julie Salomon podcast, like, where do they meet? Where does she, like, where is she meeting with Peter Goober at like the, I don't remember, but like, it's not cantatory. Yeah. Cantonori. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And not at the Starbucks. I would love her story on where she valeted that day. And, and if she, you know, if she got, if she, you know, if you don't have a receipt. So maybe the issue is then that Hollywood didn't have the capability. Well, I mean, it is the issue. Hollywood did not have the capability or empathy or understanding to translate what Wolf did to the screen. And I bet if we went back and read Wolf's book, we would be like, this isn't as smart as we thought it was. That's my other theory. There's something that Taffy's mentioned a few times, which is like this L.A. money valet parking scene um, which is fascinating to me. I, I, I know that there were a bunch of this movie was shot in LA. Um, it has a lushness to it, a visual lushness that um, you don't really see in New York movies. This is this on its face presents itself as a New York movie, but in its heart, in its soul, it's an LA movie. And the like, you know, the different neighborhoods, the um, just the the colors of it. Are LA like Wall Street is a New York movie. Bonfire of the Vanities feels to me like a very like epic, big budget Los Angeles Hollywood movie, and I think that's one of the weird disconnects that people have about it. They they see they they you know if you look at it with the sound off and all you see is the visuals, it just doesn't feel New York. But also New York, then you couldn't. It, it was hard to shoot in the streets. I don't know. It's not like it's not a time where you can shoot so much in New York and have yeah, but it Wall Street managed it. Gritty, of course, but it did. It was in the Hamptons, and it was it was on Wall Street. Right, right. I I do think they shot in the Bronx. Those scenes at the beginning, those terrible. Yeah, I terrible wonder about scenes. those terrible scenes. I don't know. Did that look familiar to you? I'm pretty familiar with the Bronx, and that like that. That ramp felt very L.A., the kind of ramp that turns into its own ramp. No, that's that's a Bronx ramp. I think I recognize that Bronx ramp, to be honest. You did? I mean, a that, little bit that of time in the Bronx was horrific. But, yeah, the, the, the burning cars and the – like, when is this – when is this set, this movie? It's supposed to be the late 80s, yeah. 
mid 80s. And I remember from Solomon's podcast that the people who lived in the Bronx and the actors in that scene like protested because it was so incredibly racist and offensive. Um, so everyone was kind of like disgusted by it, even when they were and filming. And then there's it. that Al Sharpton character. It's like all so cynical that like that reverend character who's in it like but in tom in tom wolf everyone is out for something there are no real heroes and in this there's like i don't know i the cynic but the cynical part of the filmmaking is like oh we'd better like have a avuncular and wise black judge who comes in with a like ties it all up in a moral bow at the end and get Morgan Freeman to like redeem the entire movie with a terrible speech in the final act like that's that's the cynicism right no, and that's cast- from Hollywood wasn't he a Jewish character casting him as black is then the cynical thing like don't no, we that's what I mean racism that's that's what I mean like the, the decision to take that like grizzled Jewish Judge, who I think they wanted Walter Matthau to play originally, and and turn and turn him into this this like you know utterly wise and perfect judge who like is the only remotely redeemable feature in the entire movie, and get him to like present this homily at the end of the movie, like that is a cynical act on the part of the filmmakers. Also, it's not just Walter Matthau who who kind of who wouldn't do it for the money they were offering, but it was. Um Alan Arkin, who was actually cast and then recast, which is, I don't know, like he's supposed to represent our anger. He's supposed to clean up anything messy in the, in the, in the experience of watching it. Cause how do you present a story like that while also, also the Bruce Willis character, like, like his character does not work in that he does like, it, he's so cynical. He has no evolution, and he's and he just ends up still the same thing he was in the first scene, which is on his way out. But a good journalist, I guess, is what he is. Like that guy, could he write a book? He's not a good journalist. Someone just came to him and was like, "You here is a story. You should write it." And he was like, "Thank you." And then he but, was like, but, "I'm but a clearly he knows how to journalist. He knows how to write a book." Okay, it seems to me, Taffy, that like after you came in all guns blazing, saying like Brian De Palma is a better creative than Tom Wolfe, and this is actually a good book. I didn't say that. I was quoting. I was quoting. Okay. The <laughs> okay. So, but like, but then it seems that everything you've been saying has been like kind of walking back from that and saying, well, you know, Tom Wolfe didn't want this, but this is the you know, the, the filmmakers a million like. I don't think it was a good adaptation, but I thought it was a watchable movie, especially it's a watchable movie right now for it's like strange. It almost, it's like borderline campiness of like eighties, like. Well, it was designed to be a comedy. Like, like what? Like you, like, it's almost a, a, like, I can't believe what movies used to be like, but it has a beginning, middle and end. It's just not, it's not, a great movie. It's just not, I guess I had been led to believe that it was unwatchable in some way. And it's totally watchable. Like, I guess what the metric is the metric we're talking about. Is this a decent adaptation of Tom Wolfe's book or cause to me, it's just a factual adaptation of Tom Wolfe's book, right? It's a like, it's like, these are the plot points, 
right? It does not have this some of the plot points. Yeah, some of the plot points because it's a very long book. It it does not have. it does not have the heart of Tom Wolfe's book or the impetus of it. But what does it have? If it doesn't, if it doesn't have the cynicism of Tom Wolfe, what does it have instead? Like, what? Like, I think what it has instead is a certain amount of relatively light-hearted comedy, like you know, where you have Tom Wolfe shooting up his own apartment with a shotgun and they're playing it for laughs, or that broad, like you know, that terrible scene where that random woman comes in just to sort of photocopy her undercarriage there's a very kind of weird broad comedy thing going like stream like running underneath this movie um which is odd but i feel like at least that you can kind of see in that sense how how that fits into the casting of tom hanks how that fits into the like exaggerated drunkenness of bruce willis and and how that fits into the sort of caricature nature of both melanie griffith and kim cattrall you know they're they're just playing playing to stereotypes i actually thought kim cattrall was very good i thought kim cattrall was great it was when she explains the crumbs that to me is like the scene and the t- it's you're, what you're talking about Felix's tone and tone is like I find in making in making my book into a TV show that like at every point to you have to hold on the tone because things can go too dramatic to, things can go too broad and I think that once Tom Wolfe let this go, like, I guess that's that's the point of view I watched this from. Once Tom Wolfe let this go and let other people make his his book, he had no control over it anymore. What are you going to do? And he was paid $750,000, which was a kabillion. Like, I looked on a chart and it, it was a kabillion dollars at the time with inflation. And, like, then he became one of them, right? Like, you go through the looking glass. He went through the looking glass on this, took the money, and that to me is the most bonfire of the vanities story about bonfire of the vanities. Tom Wolfe taking the money to make... One one thing we should note in this movie is that it's bookended by Bruce Willis turning up to a literary party at the um, Winter Garden in the World Financial Center. And... Behind, and behind him, you see a massive blown up um, cover of his book, which is the book he's written about Sherman McCoy. And the cover of the book is exactly the same as the original cover of The Bonfire of the Vanities. Right. It was shocking. So wait, can someone remind me, because I haven't read Bonfire in a while, can someone remind me, was there was there a journalist character but he was he was british and drunk and poor and much more like much less sympathetic um you know there's no kind of like cute bruce willis in moonlighting charming drunk kind of thing no like he's just like a kind of obnoxious i guess what i would say is that i like i sort of like this era of greed like watching it on screen because there was no self-awareness to telling it like in this moment, like all the way up to when, when they made American psycho and thought it was just a story about like, and they didn't, Brett Easton Ellis was, I don't think a wealthy guy writing that book. Like, I think that 
you have to look at it through the prism of a not wealthy person. Although I don't know, did Tom Wolfe have money when he wrote this? Did he have money? Let me tell you one fact, which is that Rolling Stone paid him, I hope I'm getting this right, $300,000 for the serialized rights to publish Bonfire, you know, in episodes in the magazine. Yes, yeah, that's how much ironic? he was paid. Like, isn't that such a bonfire of the vanity story? Like, to become, that's such a Tom Wolf story. I mean, you mentioned Brett Easton Ellis. These guys were like rock stars in the 80s, these authors. Like, they were famous on page six, everything. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Tom Wolfe was way more established than Brett Easton Ellis in 1987. And he had a series of best-selling nonfiction books behind him. And he was a very successful author when Bonfire of the Vanities came out. I think Bonfire of the Vanities was his first novel. Um, but but he, was alre- he already had the, you know, the apartment on Fifth Avenue, the dozens of white suits and the whole thing going on by the time he wrote the book. But his book, I think Taffy, you hit on it. Like his book was self-aware for probably for, for all what it was. It was self-aware. The movie is not self-aware. The movie is just surface and it's a blank and empty surface with a tone that's odd. Like sometimes Melanie Griffith mispronounces, mispronounces, that's appropriate. She mispronounces words and it's supposed to be funny and it like kind of is, but it it kind of isn't. And the photocopying scene, I guess it's supposed to be funny that a woman is photocopying her undercarriage as Felix put it, but it was disgusting and weird. And like, it, it just didn't, it just didn't land. Nothing about this movie lands. It's all really odd. Um, it just doesn't, it's not working. It's not a comedy. It doesn't work as a drama or a thriller. As social satire, it's obviously a bomb. Um, it's just nothing about it kind of works. I mean, yeah, it has a beginning, middle, and an end. So in that regard, Taffy is correct that it's not like unwatchable. We should mention that the beginning is good. Like the, the, the opening Steadicam scene is, it's like very virtuoso, much better than the end. Um, the ending is terrible. Um, is there anything good in the middle? <laughs> um, well, Kim Cattrall talking about, did you like her metaphor, Felix, for bond trading as bond traders? No, I thought it was terrible. <laughs> Wait, is it not accurate? Because it's the only, like, I remembered it from my first watching of it. And I am hoping that it's, is it, tr- is it, tr- it's, 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 it's true? ridiculous. It, what, it, it is actually a scene in the Wait, book. Wait, that means I don't know anything about bond trading now. No one does. It's, 
Yeah, no, no. Like, like he tries to explain bonds, and she she changes it into just basically a like, what does Wall Street do? It's an intermediary, which like fine, Wall Street intermediates and it takes a little slice of every trade, but that's what every middleman in every business does. That's nothing to do with bonds, right? What bond traders do is very interesting, and and actually in the book um, is much more subtle than the kind of sledgehammer approach that is taken in the movie um but yeah i i'm not a big fan of the the cake and crumbs metaphor at all and I I, in fact it. i'm very jealous of you that you understand it though i feel like if i understood it i don't think i'd be a, a in, in in fact i i w- when i watched it this time around i read that scene as her deliberately getting it wrong in order to annoy her husband no, she was just being shitty about it. She was just like this idea in the that actually makes its way, which is a sort of helps my point of view here, that like bond trading used to have glory to it when his father did it. Back then it was a creative thing and you took the subway to work. Like he that's the only the, the only way that the eight there's any sort of self-awareness or movie awareness of the of how things had changed in the 80s was this idea was this idea that was treated with contempt that a man used to take the subway to work and this was good honest work and now it isn't well i mean bloomberg that was his whole thing he was like i'm a billionaire who takes the subway but not just the subway, and he took it three stops. He took it from seventy second to City Hall on the four train. It's like the, it's the, but yeah, we can. That's actually smart to do. You don't want to take a car yeah. during rush hour. It would take it would take much longer to do that in an SUV. But we, um, but yeah, this, the the subway was much more dangerous when this movie was made. The you know the bit where Bruce Willis drags Tom Hanks down onto the subway and. Tom Hanks is like, yikes, this is scary. Like, that is an attitude that people had in the 80s, which it's hard to remember now. Um, and they were in the Bronx, and, like, it was more dangerous then. And I remember it yeah. very well, guys. I grew up in a, I grew up in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Like, I have to tell you that I remember, that, like, in that area, in Bushwick, you could reliably see a car set on fire on a Saturday night. But it was not, it was... Like, it really was very bad. The subway, I wasn't allowed to ride the subway until I was, until I was older. But like, I don't know, it was, it was like, you under like, it, it was a an us and them in the same way there is an us and them now. But at least there's access for, for us onto like, you know, a bus. Does that make sense? Like, it really was. I do remember this moment where, like, the people who had the wealth and power to make change just wouldn't do it. Whereas, it, where now, like, they try they they try to pretend that they do, or they they seem engaged, and which is not the same as engagement. But that was a time when I, I don't remember engagement then. I remember social satire books. Well, there was a lot of racial unrest i guess back then and it wasn't viewed the way it is now with empathy and understanding of it was just like oh my god this awful there was a few like very high profile incidents back then i remember um well, yeah, i mean I there were the riots in Crown Heights. 
Yeah, Crown Heights, right? Yeah. So, yeah, ultimately you wind up getting like do the right thing and you get filmmakers really sort of addressing this. Um, but only once on. they have access to filmmaking. Right. Yes, this is another problem with this movie. I grew up in Canarsie. My sisters went to school in Crown Heights and I were like, we, we drove in every day during the riots. Like it was like, it's very hard to metabolize news while it's happening to you. And you have to look at who was telling the news. Right. And, you know, there are all of these efforts to try to upend that now to give more access to people, to fellowships, not no internships, things like that. Um, people from who can, who can tell stories that, from sides that weren't previously seen yeah Tom and Wolf and one and one and like the it, to emily's point about like the race the the embedded racism in the movie not so much the racist characters but like the the huge crowd of interchangeable sort of loud black people in the courtroom who just oh, like oh jump up and shout and are sometimes dressed for church and are sometimes just singing like <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it's something. It is really something. And it is, it makes you, I, I would love to go back to the book and see what Tom Wolfe's, like, if you, instead of watch, reading the book and watching the movie, if you watch the movie and then read the book, like, how much of it was there for either interpretation or misinterpretation by Brian De Palma, who... That's my question. Like, how good actually was the book in, in the social satire bits involving race? Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So, Taffy, after after coming out guns blazing in the beginning, um, try not to, like, mention the book and just judge this as a movie. How does this rate after... 30 years or however long it is if as a movie. there was no book, let's remember that movies did not always have the same depth and the same tools, right? Storytelling tools back then. If I'd never read the book, I would think this was an, an innocuous, disposable, but fun to watch movie but it would be baff but it is but without the book it is a baffling movie that's what i'll say that like none of this none of the storylines land or are finished that i agree with but i had read the book and also everyone had read the book so i guess asking me to judge it based on not having read the book is 
Okay, so now, so now judge it. All right, so now judge it based on having read the book. Like, how? Like, is this a movie that in any way holds up after thirty years? Like, wh- how would you like g- give it a letter grade now in twenty twenty two? I mean, in twenty twenty, I mean it, it. It's as a piece of filmmaking, it's B minus. As an artifact, it's an. I think it's an A minus an artifact of like what, but it, but nobody should watch it because, and think of it as, as watchable because of its, like it really does. It's the racist implications, the sexist implications of it. You have to watch, you can't watch it in a bubble or else you'll either be too confused or I don't know. What do you think, Emily? What do you think, Felix? Like, what would you say? I I will, I will give it, I will give it like an extra 10 points of visual flair, right? The opening shots are great. The, the the amazing legendary shot where like he manages to get Concord landing in front of the setting sun. The, op, the, the, the commendatory scenes in the opera house where Don Juan is being dragged down to hell. The, the sort of vitriol of the famous poet with AIDS shouting like, you know, in a sort of... Poetry. Mi- I mean, shouting poetry at people like and and uh, i guess when do you see that anymore <laughs> th- there is and, and plus like you know the the way that you know he's shooting all these people up up very close with anamorphic lenses you have that weird overhead shot when he's selling the bond deal at the beginning there's a lot of very kind of um in your face artistry and filmmaking which i think is still interesting and still lush and still draws you in and so visually i will i'll give it like extra credit for for just being visually a visually interesting film an inventive film in the way that so many of these like financial movies that we watch on slate money goes to the movies are not there's there's a lot of like you know to bring back working girl like there's not a scene in working girl that can hold a candle to some of those scenes visually but you know in terms of the in terms of the substance of the movie it's a hot mess i kind of don't mind hot messes so much so i would say like overall i'll give it a b also i want to say this like i i watched this after like i'm watching invent like i watched inventing anna i'm watching the dropout like I feel like everything that I've watched recently, other than Severance, is, it's like, remember when we used to watch Behind the Music on VH1? (laughs) Like, those all had this pattern. I feel like I'm in a vortex of everything having the same pattern. And there's so much TV and so little of it is surprising right now. I mean, some of it is, and that those are the things that we talk about, like White Lotus. You know, The Dropout is a very well-made show, and we still know the ending of it because we know the ending of it, right? Like That's the Elizabeth Holmes Yeah, show. that's the Elizabeth Holmes one. Like, I just feel like I much preferred the era of um, 80s greed to aughts scammer a silicon valley scammer that's boring in a way to me and this a way to live consequences like it's funny all of these things are made with an acute understanding of who they oppress because there are people now who work in hollywood who are watching out for that before 
there was just like, look at this gold dress, look at this car, look at this Mercedes, look at the contrast between a Mercedes and 10 cars inexplicably on fire. I'll tell you, I've seen some cars on fire. I've never seen more than one a night. (laughs) (laughs) That was like... Yes, that's satire. That's satire. Emily, <laughs> Emily come on. We, we need you to, to bring us home on this one. Like, you came in hating this movie. What's your final grade on it? <sighs> okay, my final grade is a C or a 75. I don't like this movie. I appreciate a movie from the 80s that glamorizes wealth. Like, I like a dynasty. I like I like a Wall Street. I appreciate a movie that's smart and criticizes wealth. This movie is trying to do both, and it fails at both jobs. It is bad. You cannot convince me otherwise. I root for no one. (laughs) Tom Hanks is weirdly likable for no reason that is understandable to the movie. Everyone who is not a white man. and, And again, I will overlook racism and sexism, which is in most movies. But like this is so blatant. And the anti-Semitism, I did not appreciate either. It's a bad movie and yeah, and, and, and it's watchable. So, so I'm wrapping it up. I'm getting the, the music is playing and I'm out. If you don't like this and you don't like made in Manhattan, maybe (laughs) you just don't like movies. (gasps) Have you ever thought of that? I love movies. We just watched Ripley from the nineties. I loved it. It glamorized wealth while also criticizing it. Actually, it figured out how to do it. Maybe that's what we needed the nineties for, you know, and this was just a little, just didn't understand how to do it yet. This is an eighties movie. It is not a nineties movie. All right. Um, Taffy, Rodessa, Agnes, thank you. Thank you for having me. I love seeing you guys. That is the end of Slate Money Goes to the Movies for this season. We will be back with another season. We have received some amazing recommendations already, but do keep them coming in. Slate Money at Slate.com. We'll put a list together, recommend movies, recommend guests. We're going to have more of this. It's going to be fun. But for the time being, thanks for listening to Slate Money Goes to the Movies, and we'll just go back to our regular Saturday morning Slate Money program. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.